Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week, a guest and I discuss the Torah portion that will be read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world this week and including on Shabbat. Our portion this week comes from the book of Exodus, beginning with Exodus 27, verse 20, continuing through Exodus 30, verse 10. In Hebrew, it is known as titzaveh, meaning you shall command or instruct. Let me give you an overview of this week's reading. God tells Moses to receive from the children of Israel pure olive oil to feed the everlasting flame, the ner tamid of the menorah which Aaron is to ensure is kindled each day from evening till morning. The priestly garments to be worn by the Kohanim priests, which will serve in the sanctuary, are described in great detail. All Kohanim are to wear the ketonet, a full-length linen tunic, a michnasayim, linen breeches, Mitznefet or Migbaat, a linen turban, and Avnet, a long sash wound above the waist. In addition, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wore the ephod, an apron-like garment made of blue, purple, and red dyed wool, linen, and gold thread. The Hoshen, a breastplate containing 12 precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The me'il, a cloak of wool dyed blue with gold bells and decorative pomegranates on its hems. And the tzitzit, a golden plate worn on the forehead bearing the inscription yud Hey vav Hey." the Tetragrammaton, the ineffable name of God. Titzaveh, this week's Torah portion, also includes the detailed instructions for the seven-day initiation of Aaron and his four sons, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar, into the priesthood. And in addition, tells us how to make the golden altar on which the Ketoret incense is to be burned. This is a Torah filled with great specificity about the sacrificial cult. With me this morning is Rabbi uh, Jeffrey Salkin, now serving uh, as interim rabbi at Temple Israel. He is a prolific author his first book, Putting God on the Guest List, How to Redeem the Spiritual Meaning of Your Child's Bar or Bat Mitzvah, was one of the earliest attempts to spiritualize the ceremony. Rabbi Salkin has been known for his writing, teaching, and activism. 
Um, his award-winning blog, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is published by the Religious News Service. And Rabbi Salkin is one of the first rabbis to earn the Doctor of Ministry degree from Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. Uh, we could go on and on about the honors that uh, Rabbi Salkin has accrued during his career, but he is a wise, sage scholar of Torah, known for his ability to communicate. So it's a joy to welcome Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin as a guest to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, I, thank you, Rabbi Garten. It's good to see you. You and I go back, I think, more than 50 years, don't we? I think that's probably true. Uh, we uh, first came in contact with each other before either of us uh, thought of the rabbinate, um, or certainly began our journey to the rabbinate um, in uh, summer camping. That's right. You know, the rabbinate so is, is an interesting kind of religious leadership. And what, one of the things that this Torah portion makes clear is that biblically speaking, there are two models of religious leadership. And what I find fascinating in this portion is which one takes precedence. So perhaps for our listeners, you could identify why it is that um, anyone who attends a synagogue today will not see anybody dressed as the Torah portion commands and why the leadership that you and I represent called rabbi is no longer called the priesthood, and how those models of leadership differ. Well, first of all, the priesthood went out of business on roughly um, the afternoon of the ninth day of the month of Av in the year 70 of the Common Era, when the temple was destroyed for the second time by the Romans. So there are no more priests anymore. Now, what happens to those garments? The garments that we find that the Torah portion describes move to the Torah scroll itself. So in other words, the Torah scroll is the visible remnant, as it were, of the priesthood in our midst. So um, many of our listeners will not have visited a synagogue, but I think we can share with them that if they do visit a synagogue, the scrolls are dressed with a me'il, a jacket, and they um, are crowned um, with um, crowns uh, with bells on them, or at least a representation of bells and pomegranates. And there's a belt which is represented of the sash that the high priest wore. And in effect, the Torah scroll with its ornaments and with its uh, dress become, as you suggest, a symbolic uh, representation of the older model. Exactly right. You see, you could actually say that this is, in some way, a form of recycling. Rather than <laughs> getting rid of the garments of the high priest, even though the position of the high priest is now, in the best sense, history, we still have the garments, and we still pay a certain amount of homage to those garments, in the form of the wrappings of the Torah scroll itself. So, in your teaching, 
How do you explain this uh, transition from uh, a priesthood adorned with the garments as described in the Torah uh, portion today to a very different kind of model of leadership? Well, the, the Torah itself envisions two kinds of religious leadership. What the Torah does not quite understand, because it could not understand, is what you and I represent. That's the idea of the rabbi, the rav, or as it were, the sage, the person who imparts wisdom. Now, in biblical times, that would have been the job of the priest. That's a priestly function. The priest imparts wisdom and also, by the way, uh, would be in charge of the precision of the rituals at the ancient temple. What I find fascinating is that this Torah portion describes the origin of the priesthood, but there is an older religious model that I find preferable, and that's the model of the prophet. Moses oh. is the prophet, but Aaron is the priest. And there is a tension between those two roles that became very apparent to me just last weekend when I visited Washington, D.C. So how can you share that with our listeners who, if they are familiar with the Hebrew Bible, see the priesthood in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the sacred scriptures, but they don't see any mention of a prophet um, until much later well, in the canon and appears that it's uh, uh, chronologically later as well. And you're suggesting that they, in fact, existed simultaneously. Absolutely. Moses is the quintessential prophet. Moses hears the word of God. But I define prophecy in a very different way. Ah, so let's do that. Rather than just the seer, you understand it how? Well, you and I, Steve... We, we represent, we work for our entire career within Reform Judaism. And Reform Judaism, pretentiously, some might say, always liked to refer to itself as prophetic Judaism, which was the idea that the prophet was the one who told the truth and was sometimes highly critical of society. There's a great line by Frederick Buechner, a great Christian thinker and writer, in which he says, there is no evidence whatsoever of any prophet being invited back a second time for dinner. <laughs> the prophets were critics, but the priests maintained what was. They made sure the rituals were followed exactly. You know, this past weekend, I took our young people on a trip to Washington, D.C. And I know that the location of this conversation is Canada, so I'm hoping that some of this is transferable, in fact, in many ways, even more so. Our young people laid a wreath on the tomb of the unknown soldier. and they, Of which there is one in Ottawa and in Canada. And there, the soldiers walk in a particular pattern, even clicking their heels together in a certain way, with their guns on their shoulders in a certain way, and the kids had to learn how to walk and what they had to do to put the wreath on the tomb. 
And I compared that to a priestly religion. A ritualized religion? Yes. Um, and do you think in the Torah, the ritual was more important than the priesthood? Were they simply functionaries? Well, I think they were. And that's why I think there is this built-in tension. Because let me tell you what we did right after this. And as a Canadian, you'll totally get this. In fact, I will say to you, in honor of Canada, I think Canadians probably have this better down than Americans do. Maybe to a flaw. We went from there, Steve, to the National Museum of the American Indian. And there we saw exhibit upon exhibit about American Indian culture. Some would say Native Americans. I know that in Canada, we, you speak of the indigenous peoples or the First Nations. Right. And we saw exhibits about their languages, their cultures, their rituals, their worldviews. And we came to understand in a way that we'd never understood before. That this country broke every single treaty that it made with, with the American Indians. Now, I grew up on Long Island, and I will tell you that I grew up surrounded by towns with Indian names. Massapequa, Pawpug, Manhasset, Syosset, Quag, Pawpug, Comac, Patchog, Kutchog. I, I, I know if I come to Canada, I could go to um, Mississauga and find First Nation names all over the place. And I came to understand how much we had taken their culture, their names. And when I left that museum, I said, this is prophetic American religion. It is saying, this is how we need to be better. The priestly, so, the priestly version gets it right. The prophetic religion wants to get it right. So... You've asked the listener to think of Moses as the prophetic exemplar. Right. And Aaron as the priestly exemplar. Um, Moses is, in effect, the uh, even literally the holder of Torah. Yes. Uh, as he descends from Sinai, um, does that suggest that the Torah itself weighs uh, towards the prophetic rather than the um, priestly model? Or are you suggesting that for a period of time, both had to live with this tension? I think they always live with the tension. The golden calf story is about that tension. It's about Aaron being Mr. Nice Guy, that people want an idol, they want a God. He, he accommodates them. But it's Moses who says, no, there's a greater vision out there that we have to lift up. That's the prophetic versus the priestly. As a matter of fact, I will say something to you. What your listeners would find fascinating, and what you already know, is that some scholars, some sages have believed for centuries that the Torah portion that we have this week, Steve, it's out of place. That the real sequence is that the people 
get nervous. They long for leadership. They make a, the, the golden calf. Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, and it's only at that time that God commands Moses to create a tabernacle and only then to bring his brother Aaron close to him. That's what the portion says. Hakrevet achicha, bring your brother Aaron close to you because there has been this distance, this alienation. It's a way of saying we cannot live in either realm alone. We have to live in both realms simultaneously. So for those, uh, let me just put our listeners who may not be clear about the chronology. We have the story of the golden calf in Exodus uh, coming shortly after the Israelites cross through the sea. Um, and there is what appears to be this second encounter with Mount Sinai. Right. Um, and after the episode of the golden calf, we have a number of chapters um, of narrative uh, prior to us reaching last week where the sanctuary is introduced. Correct. The building of the sanctuary. And what Rabbi Salkin is suggesting is that um, some scholars, um, and perhaps many, who see the text as a composite, as an edited book, not having come down exactly as we have it today from Mount Sinai, um, it would have been better understood if after the um, fiasco of the golden calf where um, the people say to Aaron, make us a physical, tangible, uh, touchable entity perhaps like we saw in uh, Egypt, in which there were temples to the gods and we had this physical manifestation of the god, human manifestation in Pharaoh. The people say, make us a golden calf. Aaron gives in. Um, and the rabbi is suggesting this section, which is all about the priesthood in the sanctuary, would have been much more understandable following the golden calf episode that then Aaron and Moses together would have given the people what they wanted. Exactly right. And perhaps you could then extrapolate, do you think all people are struggling between the ephemeral and the tangible? Because prophecy is an ephemeral yeah. dynamic. It's, um, it's interesting. I think that we need both in our lives. I, I was thinking about this just in the structure of the American patriotic hymn, America the Beautiful. Uh, we only sing the first verse, usually. But if you go further into the song, the poetry is outstanding. America, America, God, mend thy every flaw. Exert thy soul in self-control, thy liberty and law. That there has to be a balance between freedom and law, which we're dealing with now every day in America, and the sense of self-control. That's a, If the song starts, this is kind of cool, the song starts... In a priestly mode, we praise 
America. But as it moves forward, we understand that it has things to say that are critical to the American conscience and consciousness. I wonder if there's something like that in Canada. I don't think we have the same um, sense of Canada being the new Jerusalem than America did. Um, America having been founded almost a hundred years prior to Canada was uh, epitomized the Enlightenment thinking uh, of Europe um, and the founding we call them founding fathers because there were no women involved in the conversation in Philadelphia um, and certainly none uh, writing about the uh, Constitution or the documents that followed, um, often using the European Enlightenment model, it was seen as America being a religious movement. Um, and Canada was much more priestly. Um, it was how can we respond to very specific needs? Um, Canada uh, forms itself into an independent entity, um, much in response to the Civil War. Yes. Um, Canada, not only Canada, God bless Canada. Canada never really had an ideological break with the crown. Correct. As it still doesn't uh, manifest with the governor general, the queen's representative right. in Canada. Um, so we haven't had that religious awakening here. And our metaphors are certainly not religious in the same way that on your... Uh, on American dollars and in um, the Congress, we have all these statements about one nation under God and um, the Liberty Bell, which quotes from the uh, book of Tzedek uh, Tzedek Tzedek Well, li no, right? li actually, the Liberty Bell quotes from Leviticus 25. Leviticus, you right. You shall proclaim liberty to the land and to all its inhabitants, but the misunderstanding in America of what that liberty entails. In Leviticus 25 is talking about an economic freedom, a return right. to one's roots, the ability to go backwards if you've lost what you have. You know, there's a whole American conversation, and it's a long one, about the difference between liberty and freedom. Uh, yes, and, um, and probably beyond the scope of our conversation this morning, but I do want to thank you for kind of reminding our listeners of that religious intentionality of the United States, um, and that the Torah, in many ways, serves as the uh, constitution for the Jewish people and what we began chatting about is uh, how this constitution of the Jewish people um, existed with attention and at some point after the destruction of the temple, without destroying the Torah, there was a revolution. And here's what's crazy. 
the priesthood disappears. And so does prophecy. Ah. And so what happens, I'm just realizing this, Stephen, so thank you for helping me think. I, I just, I realize that in the rabbi, you have, well, certainly in the modern rabbi, you have the merging of this priestly role, a ritual role, and a prophetic role, a transformational role. But I would argue that the prophetic piece went out of business for a lot of years. What underground? In, in the modern world or in the early common era? In the early common era. Gone. As a matter of fact, this is really very interesting. Jews living in Galut, in exile, in the diaspora, we didn't need a prophetic presence. We needed a way of fitting in and being okay. It only came about in America a little bit later where we have that self-consciousness and that sense of security to be able to effectively critique what is going on. Which may be, I mean, we've moved from the Torah portion, but for our listeners, this may give them an insight into modern Jewish life in North America, where the clarion call of all, of all denominations um, seems to be tikkun olam, yes. to repair the world. Now, tikkun olam is a complicated um, mystical concept, although it predates Jewish mysticism, but today its equivalent is the English of social justice or social action. And I don't know that the ancient rabbis um, who were perhaps the descendants of the prophets saw themselves as uh, exemplars of social justice, but they certainly saw themselves as exemplars of the betterment of humanity and the betterment of individuals. And they saw that through ritual, which is interesting how they paralleled that that they didn't get rid of ritual. And, you know, Isaiah says, I don't want your ritual. I want you to deal with the widow and the poor and the orphan. Your ritual gets in the way of that. Um, and the rabbis seem to say, no, 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 we can't um, divorce ourselves from ritual. You see, this is the misreading of the prophets that you and I have inherited. The prophets never said that God didn't care about ritual. But what God was clear on is that if God had to make a choice, God's druthers, as it were, would, would have been ethical behavior. That in any conflict between ethics and ritual, ethics would always win. And that, I think, is what the rabbis pick up. And that is, I think, what becomes the great, uh, moral voice of our movement. Now, to be honest with you, uh, I sometimes bemoan the fact that we try to push the ancient rabbis or the prophets into these holes that we've created in America about our own issues, imagining that we are ventriloquists and that we can put <laughs> words back into their mouths. 
I don't believe that the situations are absolutely parallel. Uh, I think that we're, there are grand principles that we can certainly take from those texts and apply them to everyday life. Well, I suppose every rabbi, like every priest, wants to channel antiquity as a means of authenticity. But we may have to leave that for a second conversation. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin of Temple Israel in, I forget West where, Palm in Beach. Florida? West Palm West Beach, Florida. Florida. West Palm Beach, Florida, um, which has somewhat different weather than we're observing and celebrating in Canada. I want to thank him for joining us. You can hear a podcast of this morning's conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.